0: Hello, and welcome to episode 36 of Of Poetry Podcast with the poet Jennifer A. Sutherland. Jennifer Sutherland is a poet, essayist, attorney, and educator from Baltimore, Maryland. She is a graduate of Hollands University, where she was a teaching fellow, the Catholic University of America, Columbus School of Law, where she served as Notes and Comments Editor for the CUA Law Review. And Stevenson University. She's an alumna of workshops at Breadloaf, Tin House, and Kenyon Review. Her creative work has appeared or will appear in Best New Poets, Hopkins Review, Appalachian Review, Denver Quarterly, Holland's Critic, I-70 Review, Arhelion, and elsewhere. She's also the author of Auden and the Unfaltering Hidden Law and A Real Danger of Speech in the Social Media Era, Employment Termination, both of which appeared in the Maryland Bar Journal, and the Work for Higher Doctrine under Community for Creative Nonviolence versus Reed, an artist's fair-weather friend, which appeared in the Catholic University Law Review. Hi and welcome, Jennifer.
1: Hello. Thank you for having me.
0: Oh my goodness, thank you for being here. Um, While I was reading your bio and, um, the mention of bread loaf that made me want to say something about how we first met, um, mm-hmm. which was in a workshop with Monica Yoon. Um, and I, may I say like my first impression of you, is that okay? Of course. Okay. So, um, I mean, of course it's of your like poetry, right? Because <laughs> <So> we're <laughs> super nerds. And um and I just remember your poems. Um and there was something kind of Plathian about them. There was oh, you know,
1: definitely. Yeah.
0: There was <laughs> there's um definitely like a drama of like domestic. There was something I I feel like I remember math too, like it was kind of it had multiple like I already said like points of contact today but I was thinking about multiple points of contact and um really interesting material brought together um and very like in intensity like that's that's definitely what I remember from your work and also you were a really nice person which um (laughs) it's not always (laughs) a given in poetry circles this is Uh, true yeah
1: um
0: which I think is just our you know Intense personalities. Um but yeah, I don't know if you wanted to say anything about that, but that was it was years ago. Um, and I hadn't read your work really since then, um, to my regret. And then when we found your manuscript in our submission queue for River River Books, am um, like I really didn't know what to expect, like what it was what it was going to be. And of course it's your book bullet points. It's a book length poem. Um, and it's, you know, it's very, very striking because you open it up and it's got these really long kind of prose lines. You do a lot with, you know, there's like a couplet feel. You use couplets obviously. Um, and you use other, other forms too, but the couplets like the predominant, um, And it just blew me away and um part of the amazing like workings of working with another editor is that um you just you share like you share the burden and the delight for everything and so like i i could not run a press on my own but having a Morak, we're definitely like press parents and um like we called each other and we talked and we weren't even done reading all of our submissions. And we were like, oh my God, this book, we have, we have to call Jennifer. We have to, (laughs) we were like, someone else is going to take this book from us. (laughs) Like, we were like, oh my God. Um, And so we did call you and we were thrilled. Um, And, you know, and it's also really fun, like working with another poet, like Amoreg and I, we share some things in terms of like be both being more narrative poets um but we're also very very different poets and so when we both like something intensely together the same thing and that's just a really amazing part of like editor friendship too um and so thank you for sending your book to
1: us and we are just absolutely absolutely thrilled wow thank you i feel like i should just leave now no (laughs) No.
0: (laughs) Um, I'm so
1: grateful for those words. Thank you. Um so breadloaf, I mean, I I feel like I have to say Breadloaf came at like a really strange point in my life. Um I mean, I I I I'm an attorney. I mean, that's you know, that's one of the subjects of the book, obviously. And um I had been a writer and a poet specifically long before I went to law school. Um, but when I went to law school, I mean, there's a, you know, I, I kind of put it aside, although there is, I mean, there, there's a kind of funny episode in my life. I, one of my law school exams, I think it was crim pro the, uh, the professor offered extra credit. If you wrote a poem and I wrote like a whole poem, I mean, (laughs) Uh (laughs) I submitted a whole poem with my Pro essay exam answer. But I mean, for years, I had not been seriously writing. And um, the shooting happened that is the subject of the book in 2013. And I... I struggled with kind of how to reintegrate my life after that. And I think poetry was what allowed me to to start reintegrating my life. And the way that I got into poetry was um, I was, you know, really, really lucky enough to be admitted to workshops like Bread Loaf. And, and I did a workshop at Kenyon Review and, um, so the person who was kind of participating in those workshops, the person who came to Bread Loaf was this person who was still, was like trying to figure out how to be in the world, I think. And you see that in my poetry from that point. And I think you see that from like how I how I was at that point in my life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I really hear that. I mean, I think those workshops can do a really really important work of, um, helping you validate your writing, especially Mm -hmm. if you, um, had time away or like, if you're having to come back to write, like for me, that was it. Like I'd had children and and done this PhD and like, had been like taken away from poetry and, um, and the academic writing almost killed my creative Mm -hmm. writing. Um, it was so just, cause it requires all your attention and, Mm -hmm. um, there's not a lot of room for play. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I do think like Red loaf and um Iowa Summer Writing Festival that was one I did and um kind of, you know, I think I think in some ways the lower stakes the better. The mm-hmm. workshop itself like because you're able to be a little more present like Monica Yoon is such a icon that it it's like it's kind of is very, for me it was intimidating just being in the room.
1: With her. <laughs>
0: so um,
1: It's intimidating to read her work. You know? Yeah. I mean, there's just... It's like rage on the page. And yeah. It's it's extraordinary.
0: Yeah. And she's super brilliant. And um, one of the best... One of the best... Because I, I was doing an early modern PhD, and she's like one of the best readers of John Milton. And I've been reading my brains out on like... John Milton scholarship and then when I read her work on um, Milton's sonnet I it just blew my mind I was like wow and that's when you're like poets can bring something really hugely special to like critical work like they bring something that scholars don't have often. Mm-hmm. I just think that's true <laughs> um, yeah and that's all of this stuff takes a lot of processing. Um, And I know we're going to, we're going to touch on Octavia Butler, I hope a little later or, or um, at any point we want to, Uh, but thinking about writing trauma and um, engaging the different sides of our brain that like we need for, to do that processing is something I'm really interested in. But to begin with, did you want to read us a little from bullet points?
1: Sure. um <clears throat> so I was thinking that I would read a little bit from the beginning of it. and um like you were saying, this is it's a it's a book length poem. It's a little essayistic um I guess I'll, I'll just start. Early morning, February 11th, 2013. I recline upon the bed in my hotel room, indolent woman, noise of traffic in the street beneath, noise from the television. The world outside is bustling, moving like a market square, importing, exporting. I carry what happens next inside me like a balance sheet. A man is filmed beneath a woman's skirts while she prepares to eat. Her skirts are wide, wide. She seats a country or an idea. Policemen scurry by searching for him, but her face is still. The fabric of her skirt lies close to the fire, but doesn't catch. I put on a pinstriped suit. The patterns on a fabric or a particular cut of clothing evolved to telegraph the wearer's status or their occupation. Chaucer's sergeant at the law, for example, wore a silken belt of pinstripe stuff. The women of the Enlightenment often wore the verdugado, not a bustle, which is something different, though it also carries space beside the body for the body to inhabit The name derives from the word verdugo, meaning green wood. Verdugado now means executioner or assassin. A bullet fired into water transforms into a stone, and sunlight follows from the entry point, becomes a path or tunnel. At the exit, there is silt and sand, a mouth that swallows, a word that stills. The Verdugado is also called a Farthingdale. In the Ditchley portrait, Elizabethan skirts swell voraciously above all of Europe at her dainty feet. She can but does not take revenge is written on the canvas beside her. Also, in giving back, she increases. Language is one way of doing business across time and into spaces. Image is another. One sinks its roots far down and waits. The other sends out shoots and colonizes.
0: Thank you so much. Hmm. About the um, the lines, language is one way of doing business across time and into spaces, image is another. And then you have um, like the qualifying lines after one sinks its roots down far and waits the other sends out shoots and colonizes. I love that you use the language of one and the other. And so there is the ambiguity of like, which is which is which um, in that. Um, and you play so beautifully with like, part of me wants to say language texture, but I don't think that's enough. It's like just with multiple moving parts and with, um, just lots of pieces and history at the same time. And I think that's such an incredible way to write a text that engages trauma because for me, there can be a um, a kind of like tunnel vision, vision that happens and you have a fixation and it's difficult to look around at other things. Um, but I'm I think a lot about the lines um, in Stephanie Fu's What My Bones Know when she says, um, like, recovery and healing from CPTSD, complex PTSD, is complex. And, like, that that we need to kind of be operating on different planes, in part, so we don't get stuck in one. Um, And I think that you're going to history and g- going to the language, um, the Vertugado. Like I find that especially like you open your text, you have a place in a scene, like early morning, February, you're giving us place. You're also giving us art. Um you're giving us like description and analysis. And then when you give us like this word and your reader's allowed to kind of like scurry off into that word for a minute, it's like a resting place. Like it's like this oh, I don't have to be here the whole time. Like, it's almost like like, really wonderful disassociation where you're like, you know, you're allowed to go somewhere. Um, <laughs> and I think that's really, I, I've just been learning about, like, there's like right brain disassociation and there's left brain. So there's like different forms. Um, and I couldn't define them for you at this moment. <laughs> but um, I think it's very interesting. Um Yeah. Do you want to say a little more about um, the importance of material for bullet points? Because, and I'm thinking about like literally stuff, um, but material artifact, material culture. I was so delighted when I saw the cover design, this particular, because there were three. So this is one of the designs um, by Albin Fisher and when i saw the one with the linen and the ink stains and it it just felt so perfect for your book because it's so much about material um and history and there was just so much in that almost like an artifact
1: mm-hmm. i um i started playing with clothing in a poem s- several years ago and it just it popped into the poem, um, and it it sort of it popped in in this in this weird way. The I mean it was a poem about my mother and my relationship with my mother, I think, and then all of a sudden this line about a bodice like appeared in the poem mm. and a ribbon, and something about clothing particularly. And the things that we put next to our body, the things that we, that we use to emphasize the shapes of our bodies, to hide the shapes of our bodies, to protect our bodies, to signal something about um, our lives and the way we move through the world, I think, mm-hmm. was part of what I was trying to figure out there. And then it just, it's that, that working with clothing in particular, and there's a lot more that's sort of going on there, but I'm thinking about clothing because of the the Verdugado, which is, um, if you, I mean, if you think of um, like 17th century clothing with those wide, wide skirts, I mean, that's what we're talking about. And, um, you know, I love the way that that serves to kind of, sexualize the body, but also um, change the shape of the body. It was, you know, it was a way of, of slowing a woman down, a wearer down. You can't get through a door as quickly when you're wearing a broad skirt like this. So um, something about that, I think, was was sort of important and working in my brain as I was writing this. Um, in particular, because I, I think in my in my recollection of this experience, I tend to come back to what I was wearing for whatever reason, which was, you know, a very average lawyer suit, a blue navy pinstripe suit and very average lawyer high heels. Um, and I think the the recollection in my, that my mind has formed of this experience is very much about for whatever reason, what I was wearing and the sound of my shoes on the concrete as I was running away. Um so I I think that you know that's working its way into that that opening of that of that poem.
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, so much comes up for me when you
0: when you talk <laughs> I mean everything from like um like the verdugato is like concealment too, and like hiding aspect as well as like right because it's like this like visible hiding right it's just incredible um to the ditchley portrait with elizabeth which like you couldn't is that that's elizabeth right elizabeth one yes. that's okay that's what yes. i was thinking and, and i saw elizabethan and i was like wait is it someone else because i'm not great with with names um but how how almighty important important style was to elizabeth one i mean and just like style and power and of course there's that classic scene in devil wears prada where like you know anne hathaway's character tries to be dismissive of style and she gets like totally um um what's a good word for that i mean she just gets educated (laughs) in terms of what style is um but there's so much, there's so much class, there's so much um, gender, there's so much shame, there's all kinds of things that come up with, but it's also like such a grounding exercise to be aware of like your material and what you're wearing and like, you know, touching your clothing is a way of like getting back in contact with your body. You know, all of these things we do therapeutically is also, I don't know, it's just, there's so much there. Um, And I've been reading Elizabeth Strout's novels and, and again, the kind of attention she'll pay to a really small item of clothing or the way someone's dressed or is also a lot of times it also has to do with kind of their their class and family drama and everything it's Mm -hmm. um, led to their life. So I think that awareness um, is just really incredible. And I'm so, I mean, I'm, I re- recently read one of your poems and forgive me, I'm forgetting the title, but it's about, um, the, the iPhone watch,
1: um, it's uh, called it my watch. device is my <laughs> yes.
0: it's so good. And, and that was just published in what
1: uh, I think in April with Kajibi.
0: Okay. It was so good. And, um, I mean, what you get to do with like aesthetics and, um, the mind, you know, like while thinking about time, um, is, is just really amazing. Um, okay. So I really want to talk about octopuses and I really want to talk about, um, long poems too, before we get so far in, um, are there long poems for you that are touchstones or, or one, because the long poem for me is, it's like, I haven't done it yet in my life and I'm not even sure I have the attention to do it, but I really want to at some point, but
1: yeah. um, Sure. Heart Crane, I think is, is important to me. Um, And I, I came to Heart Crane through the first, well, the first poet who was important to me was Sylvia Plath, which we can, we can talk about maybe later, but um, the, the next poet who was very important to me and my sort of, Poet babyhood um, was Linda Hall, and Linda Hall was a great lover of Hart Crane, and Hart mm-hmm. Crane um, appears in in a lot of her work. And so I came to Hart Crane. You know, I mean, people in high school read The Bridge, but that's kind of it. And he was um, a great master of the long poem, and he was writing in this in these long unusual their time poems um at a time when everybody was doing something else you know it was this was the age of William Carlos Williams and Ezra Pound and he was writing poems that were kind of Baroque Mm -hmm. and so I love that honestly and the way that it complicated what everyone else was doing that's really cool because that is
0: both Hart Crane and Linda Hull are not people I am you know, I've read like a very small amount, like I knew who they are, but not well acquainted with their work. Um, I love the poet Jeffrey Hill, the British poet, mm-hmm. and I believe that it was his priest wife who got him to read um, Hart Crane, and he like fell in love with Hart Crane. Um, yeah. So he's on my, like I read everyone Jeffrey Hill reads at some point, in my life. <laughs> so, like it's on my list, but that's really cool to hear I'm um, kind of like a different lineage traced there. Um, I think about with bullet points, um, I think readers who love Ann Carson mm-hmm. are going to love your work, um, which is amazing because it is really easy to do derivative Ann Carson. It is. And you see it. Um,
1: <laughs> and I'm so scared. <laughs>
0: No, not at all. Cause you are <laughs> fascinated and doing your own things. You're not trying to be Anne Carson, but, but um, you see, you see bad Anne Carson bones. Um, And so, you know, like when you can evoke someone else's poetics just by doing your own really well, that's, that's where it's at. I think. Um, and that's like, I think like, if you really love something, it gets into your system too. It's just like, where organic bodies and and things do um, kind of go through us. Um, And that's why the long poem ends up connecting with the octopus. (laughs) Um, I mean, another way to cheat with the long poem in a totally legit great way is to have cantos or sections or, and from my brain, that makes a little more sense. Um, but you you really don't do that like you you do have some different sections that kind of but they really flow with each other Um, and it really is of a single piece Um, and I really I think the first time I read it I read it straight through actually I think every time I've read your book I've read it (laughs) multiple times but like every time I just start and I can't stop and so um i think that it kind of just builds this momentum and it just keeps going and that's like a lovely um kind of rushing reading experience which is really different than you know and it's what makes a book of individual poems both easy to pick up and harder because like you read a poem and you can stop um like there are all these little resting places um and there's less less of that of course in bullet points
1: I think that's true. And I I think that's, I mean, I think that's how I wrote it. Mm -hmm. Um, it kind of, I had, I had been trying to write this piece or something about the shooting for years. And I kept making these little false starts and there's even, I mean, there's, there's referenced in bullet points, this kind of initial poem that I wrote about it. That's very, it's vague. Um, it it's mm. it it just kind of glosses over I think because I think that's what I was ready to do. Um, but I I just I couldn't get into the experience and then something just unlocked. I think I needed I I needed to find the right form for it. Um, I needed it the first line. And mm-hmm. in the, 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 at the start of the pandemic, or I guess we were about one year into the pandemic, we had been, you know, inside for about a year by that point, uh, I was sitting in bed and drinking coffee and the first line came to me and then the rest of it just kind of happened mm-hmm. over the, over that weekend. So it was very much, um, a big chunk of writing to start okay. with.
0: Yeah. I love that. Um, I love that the pandemic is materially important to Mm -hmm. your poem. Um, I really think that there is a pre-pandemic and now there is a post-pandemic. I mean, not that we are post, like literally said to someone through a mask yesterday, they were like, oh, I like your hair. And I was like, thank you. During the pandemic, I started cutting my hair myself. And then I was like, I'm looking at them through this mask. And I'm like, uh oh, okay now <laughs> you know it's just um uh, but the post-pandemic time time all time that occurs now is happening after COVID um or after the event of, of COVID's beginning um so I think that's amazing um I also really really love so much I mean I think for those of us who love um kind of the meta love a poet talking about process um I've mentioned Jeffrey Hill already. I've invoked his spirit. Um, and, you know, like he would do things like, you know, he'd, he'd write a line while he was doing it. He'd be like, and this line is 17 syllables long. And you're like, oh. or, you know, like, or like just bringing in like the awareness that the poet is a crafter. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's weirdly like when a poet draws attention to their craft, to what they're doing and they're showing you that it's a made thing that weirdly connects us to like the authenticity of the poem. Like there's something about authenticity that comes up. And so when you write about your, like the first attempt at writing about um, the Connecticut courthouse shooting, like when you do that, um, it, again, it's bringing in like this authenticity. It's like citing sources outside of your poem, even though it's still about the poem. Um and I think that's, you know, it's also, I think it is on some level, probably not when Jeffrey Hill does it, but vulnerability, like that there's like a vulnerability to that. Um,
1: a humility, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. recognizing your sources. You're recognizing how you are composed of um, the, the people, the experiences that you've had. And to some extent, you're kind of giving them some of the credit, which... Which they should get. Yeah. Yeah. Okay,
0: let's talk about
1: octopuses.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and do you say octopuses or octopi? <laughs> um, I would
1: probably do an ironic octopi.
0: Okay. Sometimes we just say octopuses in my family, but <laughs> not everyone
1: <laughs> does that.
0: Okay, so you read the first two page it well you just you read two pages and then um two lines from your third page um but on that same page um you get you (laughs) i want to say like you greet the octopus Uh, do you you want you introduce the octopus uh would you like to read that section since i'm just talking about it it's so much better to hear it sure thank you
1: You might assume an octopus propels itself along by grasping with its tentacles, but that assumption would be false. An octopus moves by internalizing and then expelling water. An octopus is mostly water. An octopus is the basis for many creatures' founding myths, the gorgons, the undulating kraken. I think that's it for the octopus in that section. Do you want me to keep reading?
0: Oh, you can, if you want. I mean, I could, I could listen to, I mean, or we can stop and talk about the octopus at this point. Um, Which, have you seen the new Little Mermaid?
1: I haven't yet. I've seen um like sections of it and it looks okay. amazing. And I think I'm going to take my kids and go.
0: It's so good. I also very much recommend the mask because you can ugly cry behind a mask and yeah. your children won't never <laughs> There's this scene when, uh, Ursula, the sea witch can't find something. And like, she's like tearing through her cabinets, looking for something. And all her tentacles are like trying to help her. And she's just like, no, not that. And like, who put it in? It's just this most amazing image of like the self in conflict, right? (laughs) Because it's like the literal body, like trying to be helpful and the mind just like, no, absolutely not. Um, but I think it's just incredible. Um, And my youngest decided that she was the hero and he
1: was all about Ursula. (laughs) Excellent. I like Ursula.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And also, yeah, it's just really interesting things. Like I, there's more of a, like a class, Mm -hmm. the class critique was so much bigger, I think in this, in this version. Um, so you have the lines, you might assume an octopus pr- propels itself along by grasping with its tentacles, but that assumption would be false. An octopus moves by internalizing and then expelling water. Um, and yes, I did drop this, these lines on my eight-year-old who was, well, I asked him, I said, how does an octopus move? And he, he was like, oh, he moves with its tentacles. And I was like, no. <laughs> um, which by the way, I totally did not fact check you because I like believed you. I was like, oh yeah, Jennifer's citing this octopus fact like I'm om- like it's really interesting, right like an authority like the poet I w- um I'm like, yeah, I was <laughs> I bought it so um weirdly now I'm like Jennifer telling me is this supposed to be a I shouldn't get too meta with this
1: um I think it's true. Yeah, I I think it's true. It's definitely true for me. Yeah,
0: (laughs) it would change things. Um, but I loved the image of um the octopus early in your poem, especially because the poet is like reaching for many different things and pulling mm-hmm. it towards them so like even if you're like this is not how the octopus moves you're also like doing that like doing this movement of, of pulling to the self um and I think that's really amazing um like an amazing image um and the kraken right like when you think of a kraken you think of things in its arms you think of like mm-hmm. destruction or whatever is going on with the kraken I literally saw a kraken on a bottle of rum yesterday. Kraken so. <laughs> rum, but yeah, just you know, in terms of how you work with art and history and lots of different forms of art, um, film. I love that film is a present uh, presence in your poem, and that accumulation and accretion mm-hmm. that we're kind of like building our own archives around us um, is also really important to you.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, you had mentioned math sort of at the very mm-hmm. beginning and mm-hmm. math doesn't really work its way into this poem. Um, I think to, to many people's relief, but math is, is, I don't know. And I, I, as, as far as like being a student taking math classes, I was not a fan of math at all. I was not someone who, did all that well in math. I mean, I got through algebra and I will never solve for X again, realistically. But um, math, for whatever reason, comes up in my poems. And I think that has something to do Mm -hmm. with the sort of accumulating nature of experience Mm -hmm. and the desire to make order and meaning out of experience. Yeah.
0: I always think of math as being this... um truth in a way that we don't have access to in, in many other ways um and i mean it's interesting right because poetry's t- truth is is manifold and multiplicity and accretion you know it's like it's just so many um and math can be part of poetry right That um yeah and and i brought that up early too because i think that there's such a we have kind of like a critically reductionist urge to kind of put poets into certain boxes where we're like, they do this and this and this. And I just wanted, you know, like when you say, and probably I was a little insecure about saying like, Plathian and then domestic. And then I was like, no, I am not going to let somebody just be like, oh, this is who Jennifer Southern. And so I was like, I mentioned math too, which is, I remembered. um, Because like you are, We all are complicated in what we bring to our work Um, and the way you bring your your kind of self as like an attorney self, as a parent, like you, you have so many really amazing layers um, as a person. And I love reading, I will confess that I love reading your law tweets on Twitter, (laughs) many of which I do not quite understand, but I'm always like delighted to see someone else's mind move in like a totally different, like, field, different mode, different language. I'm always like, oh, that's, I understand half that tweet, you know? (laughs) Like, I'm like, yeah, Jennifer, tell someone that the GOP has, used to be interested in tort law I'm like I don't know what this means I'm so into it I'm like fight every way you can (laughs) yeah um so I think that's pretty amazing um yeah and like we should be able to write about domestic and and plath and not have people kind of make decisions about what kind of art we make by -hmm. doing so um but what is what is something that really surprised you when you were writing? Because I, when you were writing bullet points, because I'm always interested in like some of the surprises that happen just because you're writing. And like, if you hadn't been sitting down writing, that those things would not have appeared on the page.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of the, connections that ended up being made in this poem and this poem is you know poem essay and I'm never really sure what to call it um but this is very much about connections connections that exist on the surface connections that get made kind of underneath the surface some of the connections I don't think I necessarily even recognized I was building as I was writing and um and didn't necessarily even see until like much later readings. Um, But just how much, um, how much these small, what you might think of, and this is, you know, this is a poem that's not about an everyday experience, obviously, but it is sort of about an everyday experience, particularly in America where we have shootings, you know, every week. Just how much our daily experience is designed for us or influenced by what is gone before. How much of a foundation we are constantly treading, maybe trying to avoid, maybe trying to cover up because it's painful to look at. Um, But just so much of what we are doing and thinking and experiencing in 2013, we can trace back hundreds of years, even. So I think that was, I, I didn't expect to write that kind of poem when I sat down to write this, and it's it's what I wrote.
0: Yeah. My mind is currently, like, so blown at the way our responses as people are shaped by, I mean, childhood, that there's still so much... Um, and i I guess it always comes back to me for like like the unparsability, but you just you cannot parse you cannot pull these things apart. um, we can as like a kind of creative exercise or something like and you can in kind of in a poem, um well, like I always think of like Hopkins as someone who like you can't like the unacceptability of Hopkins. Like if you, if you try to quote a Hopkins line and you end up quoting the whole poem because you can't pull just like a line. Um, and that's kind of the space that bullet points is in. It's like, well, you don't get to just pull. And I can imagine that was a challenge too of like publishing parts of it because you can't just like, I'm going to take five poems and send them out. Like, no, it's... <laughs> Like, what are you going to cut? Like, what are you going to pull, Jennifer? Like, you're going to be like, these three pages, these four, you're like, that is a challenge. Um, and I think it really speaks to the challenge of the form. Um, And um, we have an interview coming out with you that hopefully by the time listeners hear this, it's available um, at River River Books Substack. Um, but one of the questions we asked was, who is your ideal reader. And you said someone who asks questions, not because they expect answers, but because they know that inquiry is a kind of love. Um, and it, you know, I, I just loved that articulation. Um, and I heard Susan Howe once talk on like a, it was like a passion and research panel at AWP when I was a student and, um, I think it was really like one of the first times I'd ever seen someone talk about research and love and passion and it being this, this thing that drives you, you know, but in um, like a very warm way, like a way of regard. And that was very cool to see.
1: I think, I mean, my background is as a trial lawyer. So I'm a person who is trained to ask questions. Um, I'm often asking questions in a certain way. And people think, I mean, people have critiques about lawyers, many of which are entirely justified. (laughs) And I'm not here to sort of defend my occupation in that regard. But um, I think every trial lawyer has found themselves in a situation where they are asking questions of a witness that they are sympathetic for or sympathetic to whether that witness that when that witness is, you know, not your client there, that witness's narrative is maybe not the, the narrative that you are there to promote. And so a lawyer in that situation, I think learns to occupy kind of a, um, an in-between space, if that makes sense. And I I mean, I right now, if any of my colleagues are listening to this, they're rolling their eyes. But trust, trust me, I think lawyers know what I'm talking about. And there is a there is a sense at which a lawyer becomes in that situation, um kind of a a, a person who is there to stand for something that's not necessarily tied to either side in the case you know and trials are binaries there it's a party versus a party there's a story versus a story and a lawyer in that situation um because they owe obligations to principles that aren't necessarily tied to either of those two competing parties learns to occupy an in-between space. And for me, that in-between space has a lot to do with questions and with, um, and with the space that kind of follows the question and the answer. Yeah, and it's negative capability. <laughs> um, so I mean, to, that's what I find very interesting about questions. That's what I find interesting kind of about the interplay of my work and my creative work um is that that kind of negative capability that gets to exist in the courtroom too and not just on the page
0: yeah the way i i mean i just finished i just finished this novel um the burgess brothers by elizabeth strout and one of them well they're both in law one is like an appeals and one was a trial lawyer and um the way narratives compete it's so and they have like their work, like they have their work-in-law and then they also have like family trauma in the way all three of the children experienced the trauma, like very personally and very related to themselves, but then they all thought it was their fault um, in different ways. It's just like the sentence, right? The sentence, it always always comes back to the sentence, I think. Mm -hmm. And you, okay, so you brought up negative capability and this is one of those um, high school AP lit, um, concepts that you have to be able to like define. Um, and in high school, I don't, I, I knew I couldn't, um, and I think Shakespeare reading a lot of Shakespeare helped with understanding negative capability. (laughs) I think that was better than anything else. Um, would you, would you be interested in just saying what that is?
1: Sure. Um, I mean, I, although I don't know that, that there's necessarily broad agreement on what it is, which is like the most negative capability thing ever, but um, (laughs) amazing. It's true. That is exactly it. Oh my gosh. And, and Keats was um a great fan of Shakespeare. He adored Shakespeare and and adored what he believed was the negative capability at work in Shakespeare. Um so let me preface this by saying that there isn't even agreement that negative capability is what Keats was saying um because this is it's not something that's in one of his poems this is a it's a line that comes from a letter that he wrote to family that he had in america and um and the person to whom he wrote this letter we don't have a copy of the letter what we have is this person's own letter describing what he says keats wrote to him and he was notoriously not a great historian, so it is possible that you know the, this. All of the scholarship that exists about negative capability is is um, scholarship about the the faulty recollection of an American cousin. Like realistically, but um, it's a great concept, and it it just, it deserves to exist. Uh, and I and I whether Keats actually called it that or not, I think he's certainly doing it in his work. Um, Over and over and over again. But it's, it's according to the, the, you know, the received idea that we have about what Keats was saying, it's comfort with um, not having all of your questions answered for you, you know, comfort with being in the presence of, of mystery, of, um, of not having things resolved. Of there of being in a state of of disorder, possibly, but like potentially a, a beautiful disorder, potentially not. Um art doesn't always have to be about beautiful things. but I think sometimes when we talk about disorder, we we give that a very like negative connotation that it is a bad thing and it doesn't necessarily have to be either.
0: Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that brings up like, for me the mushroom at the end of the world like these mushrooms the mayatake mushrooms that they flourish in forests of where there's been great human disturbance mm-hmm. and so we tend to read disturbance as a negative thing too and it's not always like mm-hmm. we do just really want to fix values um, thank you for that beautiful i mean that was a beautiful <laughs> you did, you did wave, um, so much better than i would have done on the spot to ask about negative capability. Um, I love the history you bring to that. And just the idea of like, I was misread or miss historicized by an American cousin just seems like so much of uh, yeah. the relationship between British and American literature.
1: <laughs> and
0: the world. I mean,
1: <laughs> yeah, getting something wrong and, and, and having it accepted by a lot of other people is, is sort of the, the story of a lot of history of the last 200 years
0: yeah and I I tend to think too of like there's like the negative theology and like you don't know what God is only what God is not and when I started reading about that I was like this makes so much more sense than the fundamental evangelicalism I was brought up with which just knows everything it just knows everything so why bother arguing because it's just there to say exactly what it knows mm-hmm. um there's no room for mystery there's no room for things that like if I had to define negative capability it would be like well the text keeps going on like it doesn't it doesn't have an end to place it just it's got that like infinite potential like it just keeps going mm-hmm. um and you know I think To bring it back to bullet points, like that is part of your project is what you're doing. Is that there, there aren't really end points. Like there's not this wrap it up with a bow. Look, I'm done writing a poem. I'm done with the whole poem. In fact, um, it kind of ends in a way, and I'm not going to spoil it here for our listeners. But like, it ends in a way that like I think really think the first time I read it made me gasp a little bit, and it's like but it didn't end. It didn't like, not, not in like a proper ending way we think, right? Like I had these editions of Jane Austen growing up that had like Est Finis at the end. And you'd be like, this is the end. Like, Oh, it's like, no, it's like, um, that it's so much like a voyaging out and it's so much more an exploration, um, and a being with, and, um, and I think your, poem really resist, um, closure. Mm-hmm. And that that's really important. Um and the opening, I mean the closing the sea and the oh, you know, like I think that, that is so um in important to it as well. And I might have just misspoke with the opening, but um the 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 sea and the water throughout, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of Elliot's line our gaze is submarine right mm-hmm. and it's like fractured through the water and we see differently from above and below and like you're very comfortable being like we're going to be underwater for a while <laughs> <You> know,
1: <laughs> <you know? laughs>
0: in fact one of the cover designs right was like a watery vortex yeah which was really interesting alongside the like tattered linen like they were definitely There are definitely some C vibes between those. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you mentioned um, Octavia Butler Mm -hmm. in your interview. And do you want to say a little about her importance to you or how you see her alongside?
1: uh, She just masterfully, I think, uh, and certainly, I mean, people love octavia butler but i don't think they love her enough um you know i mean to me she is she, she just she leaves me all struck i mean just all struck with what she managed and and she is and and she is not obviously the the first or only writer of color to do this but for me she just um so extraordinarily manages this um broad and deep history of trauma and of different kinds of trauma affecting different kinds of people who are all situated in different kinds of places along the way she and the way that she did that which was it it, in kindred um just the the way that she manages time because time is, is so important there. And I, you know, I mean, I, there, this is a story that is to some extent about time travel, right? There's a, there's a narrator who's going back and forth in time. um, And, and that allows her to deal not only with um, kind of comparing so maybe contrasting but showing how two, two different times are very much the same also um, allows her to do that, but also allows her to say something about the way time affects our our reckoning with traumatic experience and affects our ability to speak about traumatic experience. Um, I think that's, you know, the, I'm not going to compare myself to Octavia Butler in this book, but something about the way that she did that, I think has stuck with me Mm -hmm. in the way that, that I wrote this and the way that I tried to manage time, I think.
0: Yeah. And I really appreciated that in your answer, like you talked about like Octavia Butler is writing whole generations of trauma. And um, because that's, that's it. Like, that's the narrative of that. It's never like just one person that it like, even if it happens to one person, it affects every single person around them. It like explodes families and communities and, um and it's perpetuated like every level, like state and nationally, and, you know, communally, just all over. Um, Yeah. And I mean, the way we spent a lot of time in graduate school talking about, cause I had a very like ethics and literature focused degree. And it was like um, your inner resources, right? Like what are your inner resources? And the better they are, the better a scholar, the better mm-hmm. a thinker, you know? <laughs> um, and, um, but I think so many of those resources are actually exterior. And um, when we're able to have like access to them, then they have a potential to affect us. Um, But like how you work with history and how you work with disparate subjects, Um, you know, whether it's like the 17th century style and women's fashion, or whether it's like this particular film or the the octopus or the, um, that like that openness. Um, And this just came up talking with, um, Catherine Rockwood and and Moira Saucer, but the idea of perme- permeability and like being permeable and um and again I think it comes back to you know talking about humility earlier like what do you let into your palm
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, what do you keep from your palm <laughs> right um and that openness which is a huge part um about bullet points, but also the poet has to be making a lot of choices to bring all that to their reader. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Did you want to close us with a few lines or a page or whatever you would like to read from your Um, unacceptable book?
1: (laughs) You know what I would like to do? Yes. If it's okay with you. Um, There is a reference in bullet points to an earlier poem that i wrote that i struggled to write um and that i i sort of brought to one of my early workshops and in dealing with this and um and i would like to read that poem that'd be amazing okay please do so i i wanted to read this i think partly because it's it well it's about the the shooting obviously it there's some some legal issues in here um and then it's there's also i mean uh, this is a, a line that, or this is a poem that's somewhat inspired by wordsworth too and this whole um the idea of of coming back and recalling something later that wordsworth stood for so this is it it's it's called um lines composed at the newcastle county courthouse february 15th 2013 Equity will not suffer a wrong without a remedy. Two days later, when the tile had traded crimson for cardboard and chalk, I respectfully submitted a request to return and retrieve my papers. As the scene had been processed, my plea was granted. The policeman yawned and stepped over the yellow tape into the sanctum where two days before, the living had offered up their covenants and plucked my manila folder from the artifacts still unclaimed. When the shooting began, I felt something descend like a wing or a cord. All which we behold is full of blessings.
0: Ah, oh, thank you so much for reading that poem. Uh, what a treat for everyone getting their copies of bullet points now, <laughs> <laughs> which I hope when I say this they are, um, because your books are arriving on my front porch early next week. So we will I'm very be very excited, so excited. Um, so we will be sending these books out, and just thrilled to share your poetry. With everyone, Jennifer, thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you for having me. This has been so much fun.
0: And I'll have links um, in the show notes to uh, purchase bullet points and any other texts we spoke about. I'll link there so people can find them some Octavia Butler and Linda Hall and um, Art Green. Jeffrey Hill, I guess, because I mentioned Jeffrey Hill. (laughs) Mm -hmm, Definitely. Thanks, Jennifer. Thank you.